And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me and more also, if I make not thy life as one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm not better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. The angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat. Forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the Mount of God. We'll stop there for now. On April 23rd, 1910, at the Sorbonne, a university in Paris, Theodore Roosevelt gave a speech entitled Citizenship in a Republic. Most would not claim to know much about the speech as a whole, but a section within it is especially compelling. It's been called the man in the arena. It's a favorite of many, including me. In it, Mr. Roosevelt espouses the virtue of those who attempt great things, prepared to face the agony of defeat for the chance to experience the thrill of victory. He contrasts these visionaries with those folks who are quick to criticize, but slow to attempt, let alone achieve anything. Allow me to read you the portion that's most relevant. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. I recently added a display of these words to the wall of my study. It resonates with me, not because I have achieved great things, but because I have failed. Many times over, I can count on one hand the great accomplishments that I've overseen. God has performed many, to be sure. But he has needed my help for none of them. I've watched countless families families move on to greener pastures. 
leaving me with the distinct impression that I could and perhaps should have done more. I have failed in my efforts to counsel people away from trends and allowances that ultimately could prove costly. I have wept with men, women, and young people over poor decisions and difficult consequences, only to fail to persuade them not to repeat the process all over again. I've told a young man he was safe. To tell the truth no matter what. Only to find out he's not. And I lied to him. I didn't mean to. I've come up short and short, short again and again in my efforts to recognize potential dangers and watched in horror as folks fell into pits that I should have seen. I'm the one that chose the theme of rise and build. As we enter the fourth quarter of 2023, we have yet to pull the first permit, dig the first footer, or lay the first brick. By all human standards, I am a failure. But here I am. I remain your pastor. I remain behind this pulpit. I keep clocking in. I keep crying out. I keep reaching up. When there are any number of men who could do this job as well or better than I. Why? There's a couple of reasons. First, God sovereignly chooses the callings upon our lives. And he alone controls their distribution. He demands only faithfulness, not production. Secondly, I remain steadfastly convinced that God can use a failure, but he will not use a quitter. I've wanted to quit many times. But if I do, then I owe an apology to every young person that I've let read the walls of this school. To honor God, do your best, never quit. Winston Churchill famously said, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Now, I don't believe it or not, I don't bring this all up to draw attention to me or to elicit a course of, don't be so hard on yourself. You're doing a great job, preacher, because I know that's coming and I don't, I don't want that. No, I bring this up to make a very pointed statement. Every soul in this room, every soul watching online now or later, is a failure at something. Sinful or not, sometimes failures aren't sinful, sometimes they're just shortcomings. But every one of us have failed at something. And there are many of you who are so burdened by that failure, be it spiritual, moral, marital, parental, or professional, or something else, that you are paralyzed 
and you have no prospects of doing anything else for God for the foreseeable future. You've heard so many critics pontificate from their high horse of attempting nothing that you've stopped being able to hear God. You've been so tuned in to the devil's onslaught of insults and discouragements that you wouldn't know a message from God's word if it hit you across the face. Weak, lowly, and prone to fail as I am, I am here with a message from God's word meant to hit you across the face. Your failure need not be fatal. It is time to get up, to brush off, to try again. Proverbs 24, 16 says, For a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. I failed. Over and again. You failed. Own it. But refuse to be a quitter. Start praying again. Get back to that Sunday school class again. Resume reading your Bible again. Reach out to that spouse again. Put your arm around your kid again. Polish off that resume again. Sit down with that counselor again. Offer that apology again. Invite big dreams again. I'm sorry, invite that neighbor again. Witness to that coworker again. Love that enemy again. Put your heart out there again. Dream big dreams again. Pray big prayers again. Let God be God in your life again. There are some profound lessons to be learned from Elijah and his failure in the matter of Jezebel. That's what I want to talk to you. I don't want to. It's what I have to talk to you about. The facts about failure. The facts about failure. Fact number one. The greatest believers fail. Think of whoever the greatest Christian you've ever known is. They failed. If you look at 19, verse number 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life. Elijah is in the pantheon of Old Testament prophets. He's one of two that appeared at the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. There are many who believe that he may well have an encore ministry in the tribulation. Every Jew that practices Passover leaves a spot at the table in case Elijah comes. Elijah presided over a miracle that touched an entire nation on Mount Carmel. He prayed a prayer of 63 words, and the fire from God fell and consumed the altar and everything that was on it and around it. He oversaw the destruction of the prophets of Baal. What a moment. And yet Elias, as James calls him, was a man subject to like passions as we are. What was his failure? The same failure that I commit over and over and over. He forgot the power and focused on the problem. When he should have been focusing on the power 
and forgetting the problem. The greatest believer fails. We've talked about the devil's lies. One of his really effective lies is that there's something different about you when you fail. No. Second fact, failures often follow great victories. Verses 17 through 46 of chapter 18, we see the story of the contest at Mount Carmel. It was Elijah against everybody. Ahab and the prophets of Baal on one side, Elijah seemingly by himself on the other. As we've talked about, the fire came down. God showed himself strong as he always does and was victorious. And yet, immediately following, Jezebel rants and raves and threatens to kill Elijah. And all of that courage and all of that fortitude and all of the afterglow of that victory evaporated. And he ran for his life. It behooves us to be on guard when we're on the mountaintop. Because that's when the devil loves to strike. That's when our flesh can move covertly and subvert our efforts to live for God. That's when the world is most rooting for us to fall. Remember, it wasn't long after crossing the Red Sea that you read, then came Amalek. I remember when we paid this land off, what a wonderful mountaintop experience that was. And almost immediately, offerings plummeted. Problems cropped up. Bad things happened. It's going to happen. So guard your failures. Fact number three. Failure thrives in isolation. Verse number three. When Elijah saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Failure will make you want to go into isolation, and it will make you want to stay in isolation. It is a natural feeling, and yet it is not a noble one. Since I've already been perhaps career-endingly transparent with you this morning, why not go further? Everything in me wants to stay home tonight. Not because I don't love you, but because these aren't exactly the banner messages that people look at and say, there is a strong leader, and I want to hide and yet isolation, thri- isolation makes failure thrive. And yet, there are people that should be here this morning, but they're not, because something in their life has made them want to hide. And that's terrible. It's no good. Understandable, 
natural, but not helpful. God designed us to need one another and admonishes us to avoid isolation. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. And don't forget, Elijah's isolation didn't just impact him. He left his servant alone. His servant needed his master. And he left him alone too. I got to be super careful. Because if I isolate myself in a failure, my wife can suffer. My kids can suffer. And God knows I would not stand here today were it not for my wife sitting up with me into the wee hours of the morning. Speaking truth and reason into my heart when I wouldn't hear it. You see, the greatest believers fail. And failures often follow great victories. Failure thrives in isolation. Fact number four, failure can lead you to scrambled thinking. Verse four, Elijah himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, is it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life for I am not better than my father's. Isn't it interesting? He wasn't afraid of the hosts on Mount Carmel, but he was afraid of Jezebel. Isn't it interesting? Why did he run? He ran because Jezebel threatened to kill him, to end his life. And yet what does he ask of God? End my life. That's scrambled thinking. He fell into the comparison trap, and oh, man, this is a big one for me. He fell into the comparison trap. He says, I'm not better than my father's. God didn't ask you to be. What do they have to do with any of it? I'm not better than that preacher down the road. God didn't ask me to be. We're not accomplishing with that church over there. God didn't ask out of us. I know it's a problem, and yet I keep entertaining that same failure over and again. And there's some failure in your life you keep entertaining over and again, too. Because if this message doesn't apply to anybody else, then I've brought the wrong one at great cost. The truth is, based on what Elijah's already encountered, comparatively speaking, the problem he's facing now is pretty small. But in his mind, he saw it as insurmountable. And let me tell you what failures do. They make simple things look really big. And you get overwhelmed with things that you shouldn't. You see things differently than they actually are. You take things personally that you shouldn't. 
You see boogeymen in corners, they don't exist. You get paranoid. And you assume somebody's against you when they're not. Somebody didn't shake your hand. They must hate you. Somebody didn't come to church. They must be visiting around. Failure can lead to scramble thinking. Fact number five. And I'm so thankful for this one. Jesus already accounted for every failure you'd ever endure. Nothing surprises God. And he called you and positioned you knowing how many times you'd fail him and how many times you'd fail others. I'll never forget when I first heard it was a statement that was meant for preachers. It said, take heart, man of God. God knew how sorry you were when he called you. Notice how gentle and loving God is in the midst of Elijah's lapse. Boy, it's so easy to see God the way we were brought up in old school fundamentalism to see him. is always being mad. Oh, he's holy, he's righteous, and he does hate sin, but some of the preachers I grew up under would look at a man like Elijah and church him and say, God will never use him again. But what I see here is in verse 5 and 6, he has him rest. Verses 5 through 7, he gives him food. Verse 8, he gives him energy for the journey. And all through it, through verse 14, he displays enormous patience with Elijah. Elijah said some things to God that were out of bounds. God didn't whoop him for it. He loved him. How can the sovereign, perfect, creator God of the universe listen when we mouth off at him? And I did. In this room. I poured it all out before God and forgot all decorum and just cried out whining to my dad. And he overlooked it all. How? Because even with Elijah, a flawed man, God knew that Jesus would account for every failure on the cross. So he could overlook it. Paul sums it up. Romans 5.20 Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin, failures, faults, Shortcomings abounded. Grace did much more abound. 
Somebody put it this way. Your sin can't outgrace grace. Fact number six. God provides resources for your restoration. Verse 15. God has had this exchange with him, reminded him that he's not the only one. The Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest and on Haziel to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel, Mehola, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. It shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Haziel shall Jehu slay. And him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Now you read that, that he anointed Elisha to be prophet in his room. You may think, well, that's not good. Isn't that his way of saying, okay, Elijah, you've crossed the line. I'm done with you. Go anoint your successor. No. Because God provided purpose. Go anoint these guys to be king. That's what you do as a prophet. He provided purpose. That's a resource. He gave you purpose. Use it. But he also provided a partner. Go anoint Elisha. He will succeed you. But not yet. Until then, he'll be your partner. How do we know that? Verse 21, he's anointed Elisha. Then Elisha arose and went after Elijah and what? Ministered unto him. He served him. Maybe you're staring at a failure this morning. Know that the greatest believers fail. Failures often follow great victories, so be careful. Failure thrives in isolation. Failure can lead to scrambled thinking. Jesus already accounted for every failure you'd ever endure. God provides resources for your restoration. And lastly, God does not give up on using failures. For time's sake, we'll not go there, but in 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah's sitting on a hilltop. The king has sent people to come and take him by force and bring him into his presence. And each group that comes, Elijah, Elijah calls down fire from heaven and consumes them. Just what he'd done on Mount Carmel. His power isn't diminished. His usefulness isn't diminished. He still has power with God. And he calls down fire yet again. But what the devil would have us believe is that every time we fail, that's it. God's disowned us. We're done. I've heard that lie. 
There's one guy that jumps out in my mind about that kind of thing. I'm just going to journey through the book of Mark and find my end in the book of Acts. But Peter began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom you speak. And the second time the cock crew. And Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said unto him, Before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. And when he thought thereon, he wept. Three days later, the ladies are at the tomb, and an angel speaking unto them. And saith unto them, Be not affrighted. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way. Tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. Where does this lead? Acts chapter 2. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, You men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. He preaches. And in verse 41, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. God wasn't done with Peter. I did not want to preach this message, particularly now because I knew that it would be humiliating. I asked my wife to have Claire help in junior church so she wouldn't see her dad like this. And of course, today seems to be the day that every teenager's in here at one time. I guess you learn something about me every day, don't you? embarrassing. It's humiliating. And yet if there's one person in here who's about ready to quit because of a failure, and the Holy Ghost of God uses this display to convince you not to, then so be it. It was worth it. My prayer is that he can use me again, even though I fail him all the time. So what? The biggest so what, contrary to what you might be thinking, is not our pastor's psycho. Nor is it that I'm stepping down, although you may be inclined for that. I don't know. If you were, I'd understand. I'd fire me. But so what? The greatest believers fail, and you will too. It doesn't mean to be okay with it, but it means understand that it happens and be ready to deal with it. Watch out after great victories. Let him that think he standeth take heed lest he fall. Watch out. 
when you have failed. Refuse to give in to the urge to isolate yourself when you feel defeated. That is the worst thing you can do. Because then you are the devil's playground. Don't let scrambled thinking pollute what you know the Bible teaches. It's been often said of the wise men, don't doubt in the darkness what you knew was true in the light. Rest in the grace provided by Jesus on the cross. Use those resources, purpose, and partners that God has provided. And prepare for God to use you again. These are the facts about failure. Let's stand with our heads bowed.